Producer Jenny here. Talking Feds is now six months old, and we have big plans for this show, which obviously includes more feds eating tacos. But to make those plans possible, we need to understand a little bit more about what you like and what you'd like us to improve about Talking Feds. So head over to our website, talkingfeds.com, and participate in our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes, and you can complete the survey anonymously. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Talking Feds. Special for two reasons. First, I'm obviously not your usual host, Harry Littman. This is Matt Miller filling in for Harry today. And second, for today's episode, I'm the only former Fed in the room. Instead, we're going to do something new and talk to three of the most well-sourced reporters covering the Justice Department and try to find out just what is going on over there right now. I served as the chief spokesman for DOJ during the Obama administration, and the DOJ press corps used to beat me up regularly with tough questions. Today, I finally get to turn the tables. Our guests for this episode are Evan Perez, CNN's senior Justice Department correspondent. Evan's been on the DOJ beat for more than 10 years, covering administrations of both parties. Devlin Barrett, DOJ reporter for The Washington Post. Like Evan, Devlin has been covering DOJ for more than 10 years and has seen just about everything under the sun though I think a few new things in the past couple of years. And it's finally, gotten weird. it's gotten weird. And finally, Katie Benner, who covers the Justice Department for the New York Times. Katie is a relative newbie to this beat, having joined it last year, but you wouldn't know it from her reporting. She has turned out scoop after scoop after scoop since joining the beat. And in fact, if you've been paying attention to the news the last week, you know that all three of our guests have been breaking major stories but they've agreed to a one-hour ceasefire to be with us here today. Uh, thank you all for joining. <laughs> thank you for having Thanks us. For having me. So let's kick it off with what I think, uh, to me, is one of the, the hardest questions for understanding the Justice Department today and what's going on there, and that is, does Bill Barr really believe the FBI and the intelligence community were engaged in a giant conspiracy to keep Trump from being elected, or is he launched this investigation into the Russia investigation um, to try to make Trump happy, or is there some other reason that's not apparent to those of us on the outside? Look, I think before he became attorney general, Bill Barr already had some pretty uh, skeptical views of the Russia investigation. Uh, we know that because, you know, he wrote memos. We wrote, he wrote memos uh, that he helpfully sent to the Justice Department, uh, expressing some of his skepticism about investigating the president. Um, but we also know that uh, you know, he is, you know, he's a voracious consumer of conservative media. So he reads a lot of this stuff. So I think he does believe uh, that something smells about the way this began. Now, uh, the Justice Department is very careful to say that nobody there, including the attorney general, is questioning the central thesis that Russia interfered with the 2016 election. Uh, they're not and they're not adopting what what President Trump says about the Russian investigation that the whole thing was a hoax and all this stuff. That is not where Barr is, uh, but Barr is definitely skeptical about you know some of the things that were done. He thinks that something doesn't smell right, and so that's what he's doing. And what's so unusual, obviously, is the personal attention he's giving to this. Uh, as far as I can tell, this is the closest management of any case I've seen by an attorney general in forever. I can't imagine, you know, 
anybody from Alberto Gonzalez to Eric Holder to um, Michael McKenzie, anybody engaging in this, in, in something like this, you know, where they're flying overseas to help introduce uh, the prosecutor who's running the case, John Durham. You know, the, I've never seen anything like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's where this sort of departs from what is normal. And I think it says something about Barr, too. He's a well-known micromanager um, from his first go at attorney general in the 90s. He's known to have paid very close attention to everything that was happening. And even now he wants to be read into pretty much everything. Um, I, I guess a positive reading or a, an optimistic reading of what you're saying is that he understands this is such a politically sensitive investigation that having his imprimatur on every single step will help protect Durham should Durham turn in a report that says nothing bad happened. You know, it helps legitimize that in the eyes of the conservatives who are hoping that he does find something and of the president who hopes that he does find something. But I think that's a very optimistic read. It's one way to look at it. And I think another is just that, as you say, his personal interest in this is such that he wants to know everything. Devlin, what do you, what's your take? I, I would actually go further. I think there is no question that uh, Barr believes there's something there to find. And he believes that, at a minimum, mistakes were made in the course of the Russia investigation. Um, and there's a couple ways to think about that. One, I think, for those who suggest that Barr is trying to mollify or please the president, I think that's a fundamental misreading of uh, the situation. And, you know, I think they, they are essentially, they may think the problem exists in different places among different people, but I think they both believe there is a problem and, and that it will eventually come to light what the problem is. So I guess the thing I don't understand is what what is it to him that doesn't smell right? Because the thing you usually see are questions about the, the FISA application for Carter Page. But that is already under investigation by the inspector general. It's been under investigation for a long time. I don't know why he would need to have this second investigation. So what is the thing that he thinks... Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point because he clearly, you know, look, he's the boss of the FBI, so he could get a lot of the answers that he is seeking. And and he's going outside the FBI, right? He has has authority to look all over the government. That's the point. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, this is, you know, this is this this thing that he's that he's uh, spearheading doesn't really exist if it wasn't something outside of the FBI that he's after. And so um, I think that's one of the reasons why he got the president to give him this authority to be able to get and declassify inf- uh, information from the intelligence agencies. Uh, he's, I think, going to be essentially taking stuff from the CIA and all the other intelligence agencies that provided information. And I think he's particularly, as you can see from his recent activities, you can see that he's particularly focused on on what, information was being gotten from foreign partners, from from U.S. allies that saw something and said something, right? That's usually the way we work in the, with this, you know, the, the, the intelligence agency, the FBI, they press, uh, impress upon our foreign, uh, the foreign partners to, to turn over information if they see something that they think is worth noting. And so that's usually what happens. And so what he thinks appears to be uh, wrong here is that something was done uh, between the U.S. intelligence agencies and the foreign uh, intelligence agencies to perhaps look at Americans. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that he believes happened here that did not happen the right way. And look, I don't know what the, 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 the whole of his, uh, of his thesis is, but just, you know, those are the hints we're getting from, 
watching his activities. Yeah, and if he sees this global conspiracy that would go beyond what the DOJ Inspector General, you know, go beyond the purview of the DOJ Inspector General. But I think that the weird thing is that he picked John Durham to do the review because Durham is not known to be very partisan. He's not known to be um, sloppy. He's extremely careful. And he was asked to review you know, the CIA's use of torture, and he found no... By Eric Holder, by, by a Democrat. Eric, by yeah. Eric Holder, and he found no wrongdoing in that program where people were possibly being tortured. So it's hard for me to see a world in which John Durham right. finds wrongdoing in people running down a Yeah, tip. I mean, he's, he's so of the is, institution, he's right? He's, well, well, yes, although I, I would say, you know, the bar is much lower for him in this report. In the CIA probe, it was a criminal investigation. So he had to find wrongdoing that he could prove in court. You know, he had to be able to prosecute a case. This doesn't look like a criminal investigation, at least not yet. Or if it is, we don't know that it's yet. Not. It hasn't been so reported yet. It's a strange so, animal, right? The, the the selection of Durham to look at activity just to see if something inappropriate happened is strange. Except when you think about who Durham is and what Durham's done. I think you know what Barr's thinking in part because Durham's there, because Durham is there to, to be able to investigate the CIA. The as, as Katie was saying, the Justice Department Inspector General cannot go down that road, but Durham can. And I think what Barr envisions by Durham being in charge of this is they're going to be able to look at the entire universe of collection of intelligence overseas, including what the agency did, and come up with whether there are you know warts in this process or, or, or something worse, um, you know, a review not just of what the Bureau did, but what the CIA did. And so I think Durham's place in this makes a lot of sense, and it tells you a lot about what Barr thinks he's going to find, or at least is looking for. Um, but again, that you, you, it becomes a circular argument because you come back to, okay, but what is the thing? And no one has really been able to articulate yet of, of the folks who think this is, a, this is a very valid exercise. No one has really been able to articulate yet what is the, the, the piece of what is the thing that smells? What is the thing that uh, may, not, may have been done badly? I think we're going to have to wait for a while, too, because it's hard for me to envision a world where Durham's review would come out before the inspector general report. You know, so we have to wait for the IG report. And that's soon, right? Next next couple months, right? Hopefully. The IG report for listeners into the the FISA, the FISA application into Carter Page and some other uh, internal DOJ matters. You know, and then depending on what the IG finds about the behavior of the FBI, I would I would think that that would influence... Um, Durham's work. Yeah, I mean, at, at a minimum, I think the expectation in the building is that is a is a Durham is continuing his work into well into next year. So here we go back into an election year yeah. with something hanging over everything that could. And have. can he come out with results before the election? Can he say what he's found before the election without influencing the outcome of the election? Uh, of course he can. Well, one thing, one thing I know about John Durham from being at, at the in the Obama administration when he was appointed to look at torture is he is slow. It took him three years to do that investigation. So uh, it makes sense to me that it would come out sometime next year. And that goes to when you ask what it is that that DOJ is trying to do here. Some former CIA people and a lot of former Obama administration officials think that there are two goals. One is to smear John Brennan, that the IG at DOJ has already taken a a whack at Jim Comey and and taken some nicks out of him, but no one has hit Brennan yet. And this is the way to to get Brennan. That's obviously a a view that, you know, Trump obviously wants to retaliate against all of his political opponents and Bill Barr is doing it here. The other idea is to produce something that discredits the, the idea of Russian interference, even if it doesn't discredit the underlying premise that the Russians did it, but 
cast some some kick some dirt up around the 2016 narrative just in time for 2020. I wonder if you guys pick up anything in your reporting that uh, obviously DOJ is not going to come out and say that, but but uh, look, I think the, I think the obvious uh, animus towards John Brennan is 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 out there for everyone to see, right? <laughs> and I think in the tweets, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's uh, mutual, right? Like you yeah. know, the, you know, every time one takes a whack, the other one. I think it's 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 you know Brennan's outspokenness that really right. got to them, and mm-hmm. I think it it it's irritated a lot of them, including including Barr. I think Barr has taken a dim view of some of the things that, that Brennan has said and and that has given rise to a lot of conspiracies uh, some of them from members of Congress who say that they've seen documents that give them reason to believe that John Brennan ordered things uh, that cut corners that went around the US laws uh, that restrict what the CIA is able to do so again that's some of the things that uh, that those are the things that John that that Bill Barr has been reading Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if he believes them, but uh, those are the things that I think have have helped fuel some of this thing against, especially the uh, the, the John Brennan part of this. Now, the, for the rest of it, uh, the undermining of the investigation, I think that's true. I think that's very much uh, the, the the view of 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 Barr and a lot of people is that you know this this investigation um, should not have happened. Certainly, should not have happened the way it did, and so. Was a much much you know overblown thing is what they think. Yeah, and I think there's also like there's a feedback loop problem, like a political feedback loop problem when it comes to these agencies. So, for example, you talk to plenty of folks in the FBI who aren't that jazzed that people like Comey and other formers are on, in the public space regularly taking very hard shots at the administration because whether they are you know whether they have earned that cynicism and distrust, I, I think is a completely valid argument for them to make. But I got to say, if you're if you're a Republican and you're on the other side of that and the former leaders of these agencies spend most of their public life trashing the administration, I think it's a legitimate thing for a Republican to say, wait a minute, maybe you guys do hate Trump and maybe you guys started hating Trump. Like when did I mean, one of the problems becomes, well, when did you first realize you hated Trump? And and if you're overseeing the investigation of Trump. Maybe you're giving them, at least for Republicans, and remember, part of this is about each side playing to its own base, right? So as long as as long as the former officials are so strident in their criticism, again, maybe maybe justified, maybe not, as long as they're so strident in their criticism, I think that actually helps Republicans stay on side with the president and with his supporters. Even though that's not typically a predicate for launching an investigation. I see your point. Uh, I certainly see your point. Um, one of the questions I have about this, Katie, you alluded to a little bit of this earlier, is why Barr is so personally involved in this. I mean, the, the point typically, if you were inside an administration and you were about to launch a very politically sensitive uh, review, if you're at the Justice Department, you appoint an independent prosecutor like Mueller or a special counsel, or you appoint someone like John Durham to get you know, kind of give him special jurisdiction to remove the political taint, especially if you're Bill Barr and you, you, the way the Russia investigation, there are so many questions, right or wrong. I think, right, he would say wrong, but there are questions and, and criticism about the way you handled it. You appoint someone like Durham, who's independently respected, to give you some distance from it. <laughs> obviously, that's not how how yeah, we're not Barr, doing obviously that's not how Barr is looking at because so, Barr is jumping down so in the it's middle. It's interesting. Of this. Barr has compared what happened to the Trump campaign in 2016 to COINTELPRO, which is this right. really dark moment in law enforcement history. This horrible, horrible thing where we were surveilling, you know, um, African American leaders and war, you know Vietnam War protesters, and we, we, and 
law enforcement got out of hand. And to compare an investigation into whether or not a foreign power interfered in an election and the decision to see if there was a campaign that was working with that foreign power to this really dark moment would imply that Bill Barr, who, as far as I can tell, doesn't say things he doesn't mean, that he truly believes that what happened was extremely terrible. And if you're somebody who wants to preserve presidential power, who believes in executive power, who believes in sort of a sanctity of the executive branch and the and who the president should be and how the person should be treated, this would probably be extremely personally galling as well as professionally galling. So it doesn't shock me that he has taken this sort of interest and is micromanaging it in this way uh, because of who he is. It is shocking, of course, that it's happening. But given how he's spoken about the decision to launch the CIA investigation in the Trump campaign, it's not a huge surprise that he is what's, heavily what's involved. What's amazing to me is the reaction, certainly from Democrats uh, at Bill Barr, because it's almost like they're shocked at, <laughs> at, his, at who he is. It's like and they I'm never like, read anything he's written. Did no. you not know that he was... I mean, look, I think I do think Did you that, not read the memo he wrote about right. the Mueller investigation Or the email to Peter Baker where he like, said, there's that, more predicate I, to investigate I, Uranium I, One than there is to investigate... I, I think that is the most telling quote that has ever come out of Bill Barr's, Barr's mouth because that told me... Not just that he's very conservative, because you can be very conservative and be committed to the rule of law. But, he's, but, but I think but he's admin- more conservative than even a lot of people in the building and people know who know him really thought. Not just more conservative, but that he, in his time outside government, spent a lot of time Im- immersed in conservative media and right-wing media and Fox News and has internalized some of the conspiracy theories you hear on those. Because no matter what you think about what the you know how the justice department has been run what you think about bob Mueller, it's hard to say with a straight face that there was more of a reason to investigate uranium one than russian interference in the election that is a that is a sean hannity type talking point <laughs> so i'm going to be a little contrarian i i think the best way to understand Barr is to just read his oral history interview in right. 2001 at, so at uva that is an amazing document be, mostly because he clearly never thought he would be back in government. Mm-hmm. So he's just letting it fly. And I, I will say for anyone who's like a big nerd and is curious like how the attorney general thinks, that doc, that one document is the best source in my mind of understanding who Bill Barr is and how he thinks. And two things come flying off the page when he talks in that thing. One is that he's a very conservative guy who has very strong views about executive power. And two... He thinks he is much, much smarter than almost everyone he comes into contact with. And he may be right about that. I'm not making a judgment call on, you know, I I don't do IQ tests. But I think those two factors you see playing out almost every day in the current Justice Department. And I think it's it's I take Evan's point that, you know, there is a conservative uh, media ecosphere now that didn't exist then. And that may be influencing his thinking. I don't know that it needed much influencing. I think he is a a conservative guy who really wants to like get his hands on the wheel at all times and and make the car go exactly where it he wants it to go. I mean, when he built his house, isn't it famous that he really did all of the, you know, he designed his library. He measured the room down to the last inch. He is the person who chose all of the decor. He plans all of his parties. I mean, he's not, it's not just in this one area of his professional life where <laughs> he takes a heavy hand. Um, 
you alluded to to maybe the the best case um, defense for the investigation earlier, which is or for his involvement, his personal involvement in the investigation, which is that if it, it eventually produces no evidence of wrongdoing, Bill Barr can say I was involved in this and defend it to kind of the president and to the conservative world, who would be skeptical of that conclusion otherwise. Um, I, I have a, a, a related question, which is. Beyond the conservative media world, his involvement now looks like him pushing for uh, an outcome that fits with his preordained conclusion. Does he care about what the broader world thinks about him as attorney no, general? We're he, all oh. shaking our head no. <laughs> right. No, no. That's not, right. that's not does, a big concern. Yeah, he does not really. He doesn't care. And to be honest, I think um, you know, I think one of the things that, that happened very quickly with Barr was his willingness to say stuff. And, you know, uh, Spying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. right. I mean, use words and, and it was u- the use of rhetoric in a way that usually attorneys general don't do because you want to try to rise above and sort of be able to say that you're not playing politics. And so, but he doesn't care. But it's and, also deliberate. So in that Senate testimony or the congressional testimony where he said spying the first day of his testimony, if you look at the transcript, he said unlawful surveillance and nobody noticed and didn't say anything about it and it didn't really make any headlines. So the next day when he took the microphone, he said spying. Oh, that's interesting. No, it's very got the reaction he wanted. I, I do think he's very, very careful about what he does. And I think, you know, his use of rhetoric... Um, you know, is one of those things that he does. Uh, he likes to pepper, I think. Uh, but remember, too, like how he became the attorney general in his confirmation hearing. His pitch to the Democrats was, look, man, I've done this job before. I don't care what the president wants. I'm not looking to satisfy anybody or get a new job. He said, this is my last job. I don't care. And that was his best selling point to Democrats. Right. What I think the Democrats failed to anticipate or predict, and you know, no one sees the future, is that he just honestly believes a lot of this stuff. Right. And so he doesn't need the president. You know, it's not like the Jeff Sessions relationship where the president is constantly beating down on the guy's exactly. head. Do this, do this, do this. This is actually, there are plenty of pieces of information to suggest this is actually at least as much bar pushing up going like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm going to go get it. And, he, but and you he, know what's in, what's interesting about him is that he's a bit of a grenade thrower, right? Yeah. He sometimes will just throw things, and just to see what the effect is in the room. And look, that's great at a dinner party. And you know, from all reports, uh, you know, Bill Barr is a great dinner party guest because he's going to be very entertaining. He's going to be center of attention. He knows how to tell good stories. He's a good time. Uh, Charlie, right? And but you know, when you're attorney general, it, it, it's normally what we expect from attorneys general is that you know you're a little more careful about wording in certain ways in order to to appear that you're nonpartisan. He doesn't care about that so much, and so he's willing to to stir the pot. And look, there is an argument to be made to always. Do what you think is right. At you know, don't worry about what the public's going to say. Don't worry about criticism. Do what you think is right. And, and that, that is true to some extent, but at the same token, there is a cost to the Justice Department when your actions cause, cause the public, or at least cause one party, cause a significant percentage of the party, to lose faith in the independence of the Justice Department and the credibility of its investigations. And your point is he doesn't care about it. I think that's right. He doesn't care about the criticism. What I worry about is that criticism accrues to what people think the Justice Department's doing, and that's, uh, that's damaging long term. It is, but I think part of it depends on what do you think is the future? What do you think the future of the Justice Department and the FBI is going to be? So you 
because we're all like sort of trapped in this sort of 2016 cycle that never ends. Like, do you believe that the DOJ is going to get back to a place where the gen- the public generally believes them to be an impartial and fair, even-handed uh, part of the government overseeing investigations? Or do you believe that given what happened in 2016, we are going to be on a treadmill for a very long time in which there is basically a Republican view of the Justice Department and a Democratic view of the Justice Department mm-hmm. right down to specific investigations. And that dynamic will not go away. And therefore, you have to fight on the battlefield that you're presented with politically. And that's that everything is politics. Yeah, the Justice Department isn't exempt from this huge change that's taken place in D.C. over the last few decades of hyper-partisanship. You know, so post-Watergate, you could have this cleansing moment where people get swept out of the department and everybody vows to do better and the American public is hopeful for it and, you know, Congress has passed all of these laws to make sure a Watergate never happens again. We will not see that with Donald Trump. Whether or not he is impeached, Congress does not behave this way anymore and the Justice Department cannot escape Washington. However, I think... The Justice Department, if, if a Democrat is elected in 2020 or 24, 2024, you will see most likely, I could be wrong, but I think you will see a Justice Department under a Democratic administration return to the kind of traditional norms. and will Because Democrats, this point that Bill Barr doesn't worry about criticism from the mainstream, Democrats very much do. Democrats would look at the John Durham thing and say, I'm not going to touch this because I don't want my integrity to be questioned. So I do think the que- the, the big question, you're right, one question is, will, will DOJ just flip-flop back and forth and keep investigating the other party? But the other question is, are Republicans going to run just the Justice Department one way and Democrats you know, the other? And, and I do obviously I know that some of that's through the well, well, let me holder. let me just well, say. Well, say like, also, Trump is an unusual. Like that, that's right. Trump is an unusual Republican. I think you sure. can make the argument that if right. it were a Jeb Bush or if it were Mitt Romney, that we wouldn't see the Justice Department used as a cudgel to go after people's political enemies. Yeah. Well, he, right. Okay, let's pause here for one quick second and talk a little bit about the way Republicans looked at the beginnings of the Obama administration. I, I, look, I'm not, I'm not going to equate the two things, but when Eric Holder asked uh, and ordered a, uh, a review and an investigation of some of the practices, uh, the post 9-11 practices, we're talking about the, the torture, uh, the, we're talking about the, uh, some of the releases of documents, uh, we're talking about the, the, the look at CIA black site prisons. There was a lot of criticism from Republicans because they viewed it as a partisan thing. They viewed it as a cudgel uh, being exacted upon the previous administration. Some of it because the the incoming president had been a critic of of mm-hmm. of, of Bush, right? And so a lot of the, a lot, if you if you listen to Republicans, what they're what what, you, what you're hearing from them is that yeah, but Democrats did the same thing and they bring that particular thing up. And so I just think that one, it helps to just stand back a little bit and, and, and just think about what, how the, the, each party has behaved in the last couple of uh, administrations. I'm not saying the same thing, but, but the, that's the, how the they see The difference being that Obama never um, said publicly or previous to that, Bush never said publicly, ah, I'm going to ask the Justice Department to go after somebody I dislike. And I think that the That's rhetoric right. coming from the White House is a key difference that that Trump would say, I want my attorney general to protect me and I want my attorney general to go after my enemies and destroy them. That's true. But I, I feel like the dynamic is is different in one key way. And that's that, you know, Evan and I are old farts. So <laughs> we went through the joy that was fast and furious and and sort of the, that era of, you know, Justice Department internal investigation scandals, for lack of a better term. Those stories, by and large, 
were what you would think of as middle of the book or back of the book stories, meaning they were not the front page stories. They did not dominate the airwaves. I think part of what's so crazy about what we're all covering now is that this crap is on the front page every day. And this crap is the central conversation in politics most days. And I do think that is a different position for DOJ to be in. And that's why I'm sort of skeptical and cynical about the notion that, oh, you know, when the dust settles, we'll all go back to like sitting quietly in our chairs. Um, I, I do think like the, the, the fundamental difference between now and then is like this is the centerpiece of the whole deal in D.C. And that's not I would argue that's probably an unhealthy place for both DOJ and the bureau to be. Uh, I, I agree. So that's that's a great transition. Let's talk about the other centerpiece investigation going on right now, especially since you've brought up Fast and Furious and the torture <laughs> investigation. And you're going to drag me down a rabbit hole where I'm arguing with you about the same things I've been arguing with you about for 10 years. Oh, <laughs> not, not you, Katie. But, 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 love but Dev, Devlin and Evans. So we'll, nation of cowards. <laughs> yes, nation, nation of cowards if we want to bring out all the old the old holder hits. Um, let's talk about DOJ's role, not in the investigation into the past investigation of the president, but let's talk about the new investigation into the president and DOJ's role, because they have been kind of up to their eyeballs uh, in it. As I understand it, uh, the department's role in the Ukraine story is the whistleblower initially goes to the CIA general counsel, who goes to the White House and then to the Justice Department. They start looking at it in August. Um, the whistleblower gets more concerned than files a formal complaint um, with the, the director of national intelligence, uh, inspector general, who refers it to DOJ as a possible criminal matter. Um, DOJ then does a couple things. One, they, do, they look at this very narrow question of whether the president violated campaign finance law and decide there's not enough to, to open a full investigation. And two... Um, uh, when the inspector general for, for uh, the intelligence committee wants to send the complaint up to Congress, the, the Office of Legal Counsel writes an opinion saying uh, that that it should basically stay in the executive branch. Um, since then, all of this kind of drib- dribbles and drabs, you know, gets out in, in dribs and drabs. The attorney general is personally named in the whistleblower complaint. Seen a lot of noise out of the de- department the last week or two. He had nothing to do with this. He didn't know about it. He's angry about the uh, president referring to him. What is going on at DOJ as this scandal, which now has led to impeachment inquiry into the president, is kind of engulfing, engulfing the White House, engulfing the State Department, hitting on DOJ. What's the mood like there? What's among amazing the to me, the most, the most amazing thing to me about this is that the Justice Department people thought that, you know, the, 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 the release of the transcript and they did a, a, a backgrounder and, and, and took, gave us some information, gave us a little bit of a timeline. They really thought this was going to tie this up in a neat bow and then everybody would just go away and say, okay, we, we're moving on. Go and, away and we from didn't the entire thing or go away from the timeline that they knew in mid-August. Yeah. Right. So they adjusted the timeline. That was a big, it's always a big mistake when you release a timeline yes. and then you, oops, forgot <laughs> some parts of the timeline and you have to change it. That's always bad. Especially when those parts implicate you having knowledge about the scandal. Right. Much, and so that's earlier. one of the yeah. things that to me that I just, I'm still like surprised. We were, we were all sitting there last week and thinking, you guys really think this is going to go away? This doesn't go away because there are some very big questions. I mean, you, you raised one of the big ones, which was why did they limit themselves to just the narrow thing of campaign finance. And one of the things that they've said is, well, this is what the ICIG told us to do. This is what the inspector general right. was asking. Right, we get a referral, which, we investigate the referral, right. we don't go beyond it. And that's, that's just 
crap. That's not true. I mean, that's not Justice Department policy. If you read um, uh, the, the, the code, the criminal code, it says that the attorney general has the ability and the Justice Department and the FBI can look into whatever they want, uh, any other possible crimes, not just the one. So that's not that's not true. So the, 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 the question remains, you know, why did you limit yourself to that? And, and, and look, I mean, I think we, we all kind of know what the answer is. I mean, nobody really at the Justice Department or the FBI really wants to spend another couple of years investigating a president. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean, knowing what the outcome has to be, which you can't. I mean, you can't indict, indict him anyway. Right. So. Right. The, the laws were They're never scarred. written. I mean, I, 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 will, I will express some sympathy for DOJ in this sense. None of these laws, none of these criminal statutes were written to ever contemplate the notion that a president of the country would suggest to the president of another country, hey, can you investigate this other guy who's, who may run against me? Like, there are things that the criminal laws can do, and there are things that the criminal laws probably can't do. Yeah, and this may just be one of them. We've seen through this whole process that it's very, very difficult for the executive branch to investigate itself. That's not what it was set up for, either Absolutely. explicitly or implicitly. The entire executive branch is created to protect the president, if not because he's constantly getting information from all these cabinet heads. So when, when McGuire testified... He, we all felt bad for him because he said there could have been a privilege issue because it was the president. So I then have to actually deal with the White House. That is right. just how things work. My only legal counsel is the Justice Department. So then I had to go to them. What else was I supposed to do? Now, all of these are avenues by which information can get back to the president. So to have the executive branch investigate itself is an almost impossible thing. And, anyway. and you see that with the trap DOJ set up where they said uh, this shouldn't go to Congress because this is a matter for the Justice Department to investigate. Right. Oh, by the way, we're not going to investigate this. Oh, by the way, even if we did investigate him, well, we can't indict the president anyway. So there's this massive catch-22 where t- under the executive branch's view of, of at least this scandal and probably others – there's really no way for anyone to look at the president's actions. Which is why whistleblowers go to Congress. Right. If, Usually. If, 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 <laughs> if they're allowed to. Right, exactly. And, and again, you know, the, the, the issue here, uh, you know, for the Justice Department is that, you know, they, they've gone through this just the last couple of years. And so, uh, and usually, I mean, to be fair, you know, when you do look at a, uh, if you're going to look at a, a campaign finance issue, normally things like this would get kicked over to the FEC, to the, the, the election lawyers, and they can do a civil thing, right? Um, so, you know, usually you don't bring a criminal case on something like this, especially where, you know, someone is incoherently speaking and not really being clear about what they are asking to do, right? So you can empathize with the people who are having to review this. <clears throat> and by the way, Justice Department says that Barr was not was so that, minimally that, involved. That right. is the big question I have. So we have already established in this podcast that Barr is a micromanager, <laughs> <laughs> that, that he cares very much about about the big things at the department, and he cares about the little things like except the, this the decoration, uh, you know, the decoration of his library. Um, Who's calling the shots on this investigation? We've seen it, you know, the finger pointed a little bit at the head of the criminal division, apparently made the call on his own about, about whether to open a full investigation. The, the office, head of the Office of Legal, Legal Counsel wrote this opinion, and Barr wasn't really involved. Well, there is a world in which if, if, if we, you look at the timeline, John Demers, the head of the National Security Division, goes to the White House to read this reconstructed transcript on August 15th, and he sees his own boss's name in it. If you are Bill Barr and you are hopefully surrounded by smart people and John Demers comes back to the building and has to notify somebody in OAG, 
somebody in ODAG, that the smart people around the attorney general would immediately move to remove the attorney general from the process if he's not going to recuse. I'm not saying that happened, but if you are surrounded by people who are minimally competent, they will do everything they can to at least be able to plausibly say that Barr wasn't involved. I think it's fair to say we don't actually know enough to make a judgment call as to what Barr knew and or did in that time period. I also think it's fair to Katie's point precisely. I don't think it's fair to question like, would the people in the high in the fourth and the fifth floor of the Justice Department have been smart enough to be like, you know what, boss, we're not really going to keep you up to speed on on some of this stuff. We'll, we're going to do our jobs and we'll let you know if there's an issue that needs to come to you. Now, we but the bottom line is we don't actually know for certain what happened. We also we, we still don't even know when Barr finds out about this, right? right? Because that's a question that's, that the department has not been willing to answer. When exactly he, did he find out that his name is mentioned on this call? <laughs> is it when Demers comes back uh, after the 15th of August, uh, after you know this becomes a, an official, com- a former complaint? We don't know. I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about Devlin. I, I obviously don't know either. I'm very skeptical about the, the scenario that Devlin described where they just kind of keep it away from him because the, the, the two things. First of all, if you really want to protect the attorney general and look, when you're in a like when you're the, the job I used to have, which you run the Office of Public Affairs, your prime directive is protect the attorney general. If you're the AG's chief of staff, your Wait, prime could you repeat that again, please? Protect the attorney general. OK, thank that's, you. That's, I just I'll need right. I'll need that for later. Um, uh, exactly. Um, the way you protect the attorney general in this instance is you tell him to recuse himself. And a, a smart attorney general would say from the beginning, I am named in this complaint. The minute you find that out. I'm going to recuse yourself. Yeah, but unless, we're in a new well, world well, where unless. recusing oneself means that the president thinks you're <laughs> yeah, I know, but, I mean, but here's the thing. Unless the trying to get the guy fired? Right, but the, you don't recuse yourself if you want to stay involved. And to me, if you have a deputy attorney general like we have now who has never worked at the Justice Department before, never been a prosecutor, doesn't know how the building works, and he's working for an AG like Bill Barr who's a micromanager, my suspicion is how this goes is – the head of the criminal division is doing his thing. The head of Office of Legal Counsel is doing his thing. They're reporting in to Rosen, and who's the deputy attorney general. And Rosen is making sure Bill Barr knows what he's doing. And if Bill Barr, the, the, because Barr is not recused, if he ever doesn't like the direction things are going, if people start to look like, you know what, we're going to make this decision that the White House doesn't like, Barr is there to step in and reverse it. Look, I think uh, I can understand your skepticism because, I mean, it's <laughs> because of the way how we've seen things generally work uh, in the last in the last year or so. But I mean, to Katie's point, I mean, you know, Barr really was in a place where you know, I mean, we know the answer, right? Which is that you know, there's no way Barr can recuse himself and not suffer the consequences that right Jeff Sessions Jeff Sessions suffered. suffered. Yes. But Barr told the Senate, I heard him say, I don't care if the president gets mad at me and fires me. Maybe that wasn't wholly accurate. (laughs) (laughs) What things change? Evan, you said something to me early in the days when I was at the Justice Department. You you covered the Justice Department during the last two years of the Bush administration when the place basically imploded in scandal. There was yes. a, you know, a scandal around uh, uh, hiring and firing of, of, of people. There was a, of U.S. attorneys, of other career uh, officials. And you told me that um, for a long time, the department, like any institution, it's hard. You, you go around knocking on a lot of doors, and people keep, you know, people kind of stick stick together. Don't return your calls. They're not ready to talk. And when scandal starts to break open, that's when everyone starts to think more about their own reputation than the institutions, and they start protecting themselves. With this Ukraine scandal touching so many people in the administration, are we at that point yet where 
the Justice Department is starting to break down, and the Deputy Attorney's Gen- General Office is pointing fingers at the AG, and back, it's a usual thing that happens there, so and, and vice versa around. What's interesting about this one is, I mean, so they, they, we've gone through cycles, right? Uh, right at the beginning of the administration, uh, when uh, when Trump is really mad at Sessions, and <laughs> Sessions is taking all the incoming, and there's some uh, certainly some tension between the fourth and fifth floor. Rod Rosenstein has appointed a special counsel. Sessions is very surprised to learn this because he's at the White House when he finds this out and gets a phone call and is told that, you know, Bob Mueller is coming on board. So all of these things happen. That was a particularly cruel thing to do to Sessions. If you're going to do it, don't do it while he's in the Oval Office. Right. It's a very cruel thing. But Rod Rosenstein does this, and it leads to a a very long period of tension between the fourth and fifth floors of the department. And so one of the things that did happen was, you know, you did get a a lot more whispers and a lot more, more, more more people coming out. It doesn't seem to be happening right now. I mean, people right now, everybody is cowering behind every piece of furniture, it seems like. The wagons are still circled. Well, I think, (laughs) I don't know if it's the wagons necessarily. It's more that I think everybody's just waiting for the next mm. also know, and it hasn't it. hit the building yet I don't state think, department is yeah. under the gun DOJ is still it's interesting you know if, if Nancy Pelosi wants to do this impeachment in four to six weeks if that's really her timeline she has to be so singularly focused on the phone call right she has to be mm-hmm. so singularly focused on the people who are coming to her who are from the state department she, she might not ever get a chance in four weeks to right. delve deeper into what Bill Barr has been up to or what Ed O'Callaghan has been up to and if she doesn't, then DOJ will not. And by the way, there's the so much. I mean, we know that one of the things that John Demers did when he comes from the White House after reviewing the transcript is he starts memoing everything. Mm. And we know that there are one of the great things about the Justice Department is that everyone writes oh, emails they and memos they and they memo everything. <sighs> paper over it. So there is paper. There is a paper trail that I think, you know, we all would love to see because it is fascinating. It will, it will be fascinating to see how they were handling those key, you know, the, the, the 10, 12 days, uh, the scramble that was going on behind the scenes there in the building, you know, uh, supposedly it's a, it's a quiet time in Washington, right? They're all hmm. on vacation, but all hell was breaking loose in that building. And we don't know to what extent, you know, anything was done wrong or, or right. I mean, we don't, we simply don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think to Katie's point, I think state is still at the center of this hurricane. And I think the time crunch may keep it at state. And to your question, I, I to me in, in recent history, the toughest internal time was what I think of as the Matt Whitaker era and how the fourth and the fifth floor of DOJ on okay, some I days were yeah. just like, man, I, I, I'm not going to say it on a live mic, but that was a tense time internally with camps within the building and people, you know, the, doing the bureaucratic version of shiving each other. Um, I don't see much of that yet. And but I also wouldn't try to predict like, so where are we going to go from here? Where are we going to go from there? I, I do think it's there's more that that type of tension seems to exist more at state right now when people are, are being forced to take sides right now because subpoenas are flying. Matt Whitaker is a great segue to my last question, which is, <laughs> and I'm not going where you think, wow. Katie. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the political leadership at the department, uh, basically this whole podcast. Um, the department over the three years of this administration, I think, has been more of a public political football than probably any time in its history. And there are a lot of uh, career uh, officials there. Investigators at the FBI, uh, lawyers at the department who have seen the, pub- the, the president attack their integrity. Um, 
uh, you know, besmirch the, the department, run its reputation through the mud over and over again. How's morale for those people right now, three years into the, the Trump presidency? I think people are exhausted. I mean, that's the sense that people are tired of this. They're tired of being in the center of all of this stuff. But I'll tell you this, though. There's a difference also, though, between, and Devlin and I commiserate about this all the time, about the, you know, covering the department and covering the FBI, right? The FBI is a, is a, is a different animal, um, and they are just... I, it's just decimated. The morale, the, the, you know, people are afraid of everything. I mean, you know, if a cloud comes up uh, over the building, they're immediately looking for incoming, right? They just don't know where this is going to go next. And you can tell in everything. They, they're not able to tell their story. You know, the FBI might do something good, but they're afraid to talk about it because, uh, you know, they're going to get questions about other things, right? And so uh, that's one of the things that I've never, I never thought I'd see. You know, during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration, um, the president's, themselves were a little fearful of the FBI. They were like, well, we can't mess, we can't touch that thing because if we do, the FBI is going to leak against us and we we will suffer the consequences. I've never seen, I never thought I'd see the day that, you know, the FBI is essentially been cowering and, and, and been brought to heel. And it's been done by this president. This president has basically just made sure that, uh, you know, they are afraid of, of doing anything and saying anything. And you could, see, you could see it in just their behavior in, in handling this thing. So I think everything Evan is saying is right. But I think that reflects the, the dynamic at headquarters and, and, and the Justice Department. So FBI headquarters and main DOJ. I think that is absolutely true. I think one of the ways that this has affected the institutions that I don't think we fully understand the implications of is that I don't think a lot of this stuff actually matters to the field offices or the U.S. attorney's offices that are doing the work. Um, You know, you don't pick up much in terms of folks out in different states, you know, any state around the country saying, you know, like, man, I went to see a witness and he just harangued me for 20 minutes about the Carter Page FISA. Anecdotally speaking, you don't hear much of that. And I, I do I do wonder, like, is is one of the so- the weird side effects of this process that headquarters in the field are just going to be further apart for a while and that he- the fields are just going to do their own thing and try to just not interact with with headquarters at all? Because if you think back to sort of the, the history of, of those institutions, you know, 9-11 was a big impetus for headquarters taking more and more control over everything the fields do. And I think now, because of all this political stuff, you're seeing the fields actually getting a little more breathing room and and a little more hands-off because headquarters ha- just has too many problems to deal with. Katie, you have any final thoughts? No, nope, sounds good. Great. Uh, I think that's a great place to close. Thank you, Katie, Evan, and Devlin uh, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Thanks to Matt Miller for guest hosting this illuminating episode. Talking Feds is produced by me, Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. 
David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Thanks to Courtney Columbus for recording this episode and Allison Wilson for editing. And thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. Harry will be back next week or sooner. <laughs>